Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And uh, the Victorian government appears to be moving on Vic Forests. It's forestry business that has been plagued by scandal and debt. And this is ahead of a native forest logging ban, which begins on the 1st of January next year. Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth has spoken to us several times about Vic Forests and many, many times about native forest logging. He's with Friends of the Earth's, um, his Friends of the Earth campaign's coordinator. And uh, Cam, it's great to have you with us. Good morning. Yeah. Good morning, Kalia. And... Uh, I mean, what do we know so far about the plans for Vic Forests? Well, look, not a lot, to be honest. Um, it was announced by a government gazette that uh, Vic Forests had been deregistered as a government business. So it's the state-owned business. Um, I believe the Treasurer is the key stakeholder in it, and um, it's now been deregistered. So we're taking that as a very, very good sign. Uh, once the logging ends in the east of the state on January 1 and there's no commercial logging of forests in the east of the state, we just don't see a role for Vic Forest. Um, as you said in the intro, you know, they've they've lost their social licence, they've been stuck in court cases, they've lost lots of our money, uh, they're stuck in ongoing uh, legal cases, you know, there's just no future for them. They do have some functions that need to be sustained, such as the ash reseeding program, which is really important, but that can go over into the Environment Department. So we're very hopeful this is an indicator that the state government is going to formally wind them up and there is a review underway and we expect there will be a final decision before the end. Yeah. And, I mean, this is ahead of a ban on native logging in the state. I mean, what does that mean for kind of the areas, I suppose, that were administered by Vic Forest? Do you know, are there restorative efforts that are, that are sort of coming in in its place or, or what do we know so far? There's going to be a very vigorous conversation around that, as you can imagine. There's 1.8 million hectares of public land in the east of the state that has been subject to logging or available for logging. A lot of it has been logged, a lot of it has been burnt, and there is going to be a serious public kind of conversation about what next. We're saying what's really important is to listen to to traditional owners. There are um, at least five, possibly six, uh, First Nations groups with an interest in those areas in the east of the state. So we're saying the most important thing is to make sure they're at the table and that their views are noted. Um, there will be an eminent people's panel announced by the Victorian government, which we hope will investigate the issues, look at the options, make some recommendations, and that that will then be open to community consultation. So uh, with the months rapidly evaporating before January 1, we're hoping there will be an announcement on the panel fairly soon. And so, I mean, this sounds like there will be an opportunity then for a different kind of forestry management or uh, something that has a better word than forestry management, Cam. Yeah, so we need to think about, well, how do we manage these forests? We need to accept we live in a time of climate change, which means ever greater fire risk. We have something like 100,000 hectares, which is a vast amount of land of alpine ash forests that have either been logged or burnt or logged and burnt, which are facing what's called ecological collapse. So we need to look after those forests and bring them back uh, into ecological health. 
you know, we have lots of areas that are very popular for camping and, and walking and all sorts of outdoor recreational activity. So we're going to need quite a comprehensive plan. There's no suggestion that we, you know, quote, lock it up and walk away. We're going to have to manage these forests. We're going to have to restore these forests. And really, at this point, no one knows what that means and what that looks like, whether that's, you know, some form of intervention in some forests. In other instances, do we keep fire out? In other instances, do we use appropriate forms of fire? You know, how do we manage these forests is yet to be determined. And so what does it mean for threatened species and the like, Cam? We know that, uh, you know, the greater glider, for instance, has been particularly threatened by logging in some parts of the state. Are you hopeful that with this news that, that you know, Vic Forest looks to be wound up and obviously the native forest ban coming in, that the, there, there might be a more positive future in, in that regard too, potentially? Oh, absolutely. Um, the government took a brave position by bringing forward native, the end of native forest logging in the east. I keep saying east because there will be logging west of the Hume Highway, but that's another story. But in the east, um, it's really good that they did this. Previously, there was a commitment to end native forest logging by 2030. They brought it forward to the start of 2024. And this indicates that the government understands that the industry is changing, that the future of the industry is in softwood not in native forest hardwoods. Um, it's indicated it's going to look after the workers that will be impacted and that will free up the space once we stop logging these forests to actually look after the forest and the animals that live in them. So we see the future as being great for those species like the greater glider, that they work, the forests will now be managed for the benefit of them and other ecological values rather than for a, a basically a native forest industry that was driven by pulp that was losing taxpayers' money. So we're very hopeful about the future of threatened species like the glider. And uh, so is Vic Forest the main uh, logging outfit in Victoria Cam or are there others that will also be impacted by the 1 January ban on native forest logging? No, so this is just Vic Forest and the contractors that they employ. We have a massive uh, softwood plantation estate in Victoria. Some of that's private. A lot of that is run through Hancock's uh, uh, resources. None of that will be affected by this. This is specifically around native forest logging. So everything else will continue as uh, as has been normal in Victoria, including a lot of the timber we rely on for, for framing in houses and all the rest of it. Speaking with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about uh, a few issues in environment news, one that Vic Forest looks to be in the process of being wound up by the Victorian government and, and also about this new data from the World Meteorolo Meteorological um, organisation, Cam. We've heard the words climate breakdown used. I mean, you know, it's kind of tough reading when this data does come out. How should we interpret the latest findings? The news on climate is coming so thick and fast it's easy to be a little bit overwhelmed by it. Um, and if you, you know, anyone that pays attention to the news, I mean, it's almost without a day where there isn't some disaster going on, you know, whether I, I think of Greece, they had those terrible fires and then they had the terrible flooding, you know, and it's been everywhere. It's been China, it's been India, it's been the Northern Hemisphere. You know, our fire seasons are kicking off. There's massive fires in the Northern Territory and, you know, what, where are we in, in not even mid-September? We are witnessing ever more extreme climatic events and there was a, a report that was just released by the World Meteorological Organisation via the work of a really... Um, respected entity called the Copernicus Climate Change Service. And they basically said that this was the hottest northern summer um, that we've experienced. And it's basically what happens when you hit 1.5 degrees Celsius of warmth 
warming against pre-industrial levels. And the reason this is so significant is because that is the target that the global community is trying to hold warming under. And, and we've nudged just over that. Uh, I think 2016 is now the second hottest year. That was also a bad El Nino year. But this is basically, if we imagine when we have this kind of esoteric conversation about holding uh, emissions and reducing emissions and holding overall warming to 1.5 degrees, this is the future we are envisaging. But it's no longer the future. It is now. You know, we're living in it now. And a couple of years ago, we were saying, can we hold it to 1.5? And now the, the argument is shifting out to can we hold it to 2 degrees? We can't let go of 1.5. But um, this is, it's just so scary that this is what is happening now. Like, it's, it's no longer something in the future. And I was listening to uh, this pretty incredible speech from the UN Secretary-General, and uh, Antonio Guterres, and he was the one who was talking around climate breakdown. And he said very clearly, climate breakdown has begun. And remember, he's working off the best available science on the planet. He's backed by the UN. He knows absolutely what's going on. And he said, scientists have long warned what our fossil fuel addiction will unleash. Our climate is imploding faster than we can cope with, with extreme weather events hitting every corner of the planet. So two key messages. We're already at 1.5. We're already experiencing these dramatic impacts. We will experience more, but it's due to our addiction to fossil fuels so we can do something about it. So we have a very real problem. It's very real now, but we still have an option to end it. That is to reduce our emissions radically on a global scale and reduce the amount of future climate change that we and our kids and grandkids experience. Cam, I mean, uh, the UN also just released its latest stock take of climate action and called out that... Uh, meeting that one and a half degree temperature goal, that limit um, temperature limit goal, will require phasing out of unabated fossil fuels. Now that's all fossil fuels that are are not abated, and we've got the uh, the next uh, climate talks coming up in Dubai uh, in December. I mean, what is on the agenda there? Are we likely to see uh, the world take stock? You have to hope because these climate impacts are absolutely so massive and they're touching every corner of the planet. Uh, the heat wave impacts of the last northern summer have been astronomical. Several billion people on the planet were impacted by heat waves and we know that places like Africa were uh, you know, just incredibly hit by that. We've had the flooding, we've had the fires, we've got... Um, sea uh, water temperatures that are just off the scale. Um, so we have to hope that that as a backdrop when the global community meets um, at the end of the year at what's called the COP, the Conference of Parties Number 28, as you mentioned, we have to hope that we take all this evidence into account. There is a thing called attribution science, which is a form of climate science that looks at how climate change impacts weather and whether there are links between a, a particular event like a heat wave or a summer of heat waves and climate change. It's very clear that the fingerprints of climate change are all over what's happened in this northern summer. And that report from the UN, which is meant to guide the conversations at the COP28, clearly say that we're not in, in on track to meet our targets as a global community. Australia is now approving new coal um, mines, which is absolutely out of step with what the science says. But we're hoping that that key message of there can be no new unabated fossil fuels will impact um, on the negotiations that happen at the COP later this year. And that, that 
sort of notion that you know Australia has greenlit new coal projects fairly recently. I mean, we have ambitions to, to host global climate talks in a few years' time. What's your sense of our standing as kind of international citizens in this space? There's obviously been a, a positive shift under this government, but if that sort of thing continues, greenlighting coal projects and the like, how much sort of impact or consequences are there internationally for um, those multilateral climate agreements? Oh, it's a huge uh, threat to our uh, ability to co-host um, the, the COP, as we're hoping to do in two years' time, I think it is, um, because it will be co-hosted with Pacific Island nations. And they're very clear that their very survival in many instances, places such as Tuvalu and Kiribati in particular, um, is at it's facing existential threat because of sea level, which is linked to human-induced climate change, which is linked to use of fossil fuels. So it just seems bizarre that uh, a federal government that clearly gets climate change, gets the need to rapidly transition to renewables and away from fossil fuels, would be approving any new fossil fuels, particularly on the, the back of this new UN report. Um, it's uh, really sad because what it does is it kind of undermines all the good work they are doing in the energy space because you have to look at the fact that they are approving new coal mines. So it, it, it considerably undermines our chances of being able to hope that COP. I think it's COP31. Cam, it's great speaking with you and it's been wonderful speaking to you for the last sort of 14 and a half years, I have to say, because I um, mentioned earlier in the show that this is my second last grapevine and uh, and you have really been part of my whole Triple R broadcasting time, I'd say. Uh, I think we've, we started talking to you yeah, back in 2008 or nine when we started this program. So, yeah, thank you for your time. And I hope it will continue because Dylan is going to stay on the show. But Absolutely. thank you so much. And I want to jump in. I'm doing my best to embarrass Carly <laughs> in these last couple of shows, Cam. So, I mean, I wonder if you sort of could offer any reflections on being part of this show for so long and, and you know, what, what sort of brought you here in the first place? Uh, I honestly can't uh, remember how I ended up there, but um, I think I was inherited from an earlier uh, show. But um, it has been an amazing 14 years. Um, It's scary how we often talk about the same stuff over and over and you feel like you're banging, you know, your head against the wall. But also there's been some amazing forward movement in that time. And it's just been so great to have that monthly chat and feel, uh, you know, part of the community, the Triple R community. And also to kind of just appreciate the role that Kalia has taken from doing this for so long. You really are a part of the community radio landscape in Melbourne and you'll really be missed and I know you're going on to do some really important work in the climate space but yeah it has been fun um it's been great to have the yarns and uh yes I think everyone will miss you absolutely yeah and uh I'll miss you but Cam I'm sure we'll catch up at some point it's um you know I've known you a long 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 time and um you sort of boggle my mind how much energy and passion that you bring to these issues uh yeah every every day for you and uh but also to Triple R. So thank you very much and, yeah, catch you soon. Yeah, all the best. Triple R. Blowing the whistle in Australia, even if it exposes wrongdoing, can end the whistleblower's career, risk their personal safety and risk themselves ending up on trial. The Human Rights Law Centre last month established the first dedicated legal service for whistleblowers in Australia and senior lawyer Kieran Bender is, uh, Pender sorry, is here to tell us more. And uh, Kieran, it's great to have you on Triple R. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mean, what does the whistle, uh, the whistleblower project 
offer to whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers? So we have this problem in Australia that we know whistleblowers make uh, our society a better place by exposing wrongdoing, um, but uh, too many whistleblowers are suffering. Um, uh, the data shows that whistleblowers suffer when they speak up at work. Some of them lose their job, and, and in the most high-profile cases at the moment, we've got two whistleblowers on trial for telling the truth. So the Whistleblower Project is the Human Rights Law Centre's answer to that problem. We're trying to support whistleblowers to speak up safely, lawfully and impactfully, um, provide legal support to ensure that the rights that exist on paper for people who blow the whistle actually uh, work uh, in reality. So it's very exciting. Ab- absolutely, and much needed. Can you just talk us through what those those rights are, legally speaking? I mean, if someone is blowing the whistle and wrongdoing within their company or their workplace or whatnot, uh, in terms of kind of the, the legal side of things, what protections are there? So if people speak up at work about wrongdoing, uh, they have protections uh, under law that should ensure they... Uh, their concerns are listened to and investigated and then they don't suffer any retaliation as a result. So these laws, which uh, protect almost every worker in the Australian economy, we've got laws at a federal level, both for public and private sector workers. We've got uh, laws in every state and territory which say that if you see some wrong going at work and you speak up about it, uh, you're you're protected in doing so. Uh, You can't lose your job as a result. It's a criminal offence to take uh, action against a whistleblower who speaks up and then if a whistleblower does suffer, they have the legal rights to go to court, to seek compensation, to seek reinstatement and so on. Uh, unfortunately, those laws just aren't working. So to coincide with the launch of our project, we reviewed every whistleblowing case ever in Australia um, and only one uh, across um, 22 bits of law across three decades since the first of those bits of law was introduced, only one has been a whistleblower rewarded uh, with compensation uh, after they lost their job for speaking up about wrongdoing. So the law isn't working, and as a consequence, and as a consequence of these ongoing prosecutions and the the wider uh, challenges faced by people who speak up, um, whistleblowers aren't speaking up. And so, you know, I think we can reflect on we know so much because brave people spoke up, but what don't we know? Um, Because in the face of all of this, people are staying silent instead. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine if there's only one case out of how many did you did you look at? Uh, we looked at um, almost 80 cases, uh, and only a handful had some degree of success uh, for the whistleblower, and only one saw a whistleblower uh, compensated for losing their job, uh, and they only received $5,000. Um, so the law is not working, and, and it, it compares... Australia is really falling behind other countries. So places like the United States have really robust whistleblower protection frameworks that see whistleblowers protected and and empowered. Whistleblowers in the US, if they see wrongdoing against the government, can sue on the government's behalf, and if successful, they can even take a cut of the reward, of the the penalty paid by the wrongdoer. So we had a a case just recently in the US where uh, uh, someone blew the whistle on um, fraud at a defence contracting uh, consultancy they received about seventy million US dollars um, for speaking up, and the US government recovered over three hundred million US dollars. And yet, in Australia, we have 
two whistleblowers on trial for telling the truth. So it's a really stark difference, and, and that's really what the Human Rights Law Centre's whistleblower project is hoping to achieve, is to uh, level the playing field and provide support and protection for people who speak up about wrongdoing, because ultimately um, we need these truth-tellers in our democracy. $5,000 versus $70 million is is a big difference. So, I mean, so the chilling effect that is there in the, the system at the moment is something I imagine the, the whistle... Uh, blower project is seeking to address but what is it that the the human rights law center can do to level the playing field um, we all, uh, for a long time, have been advocating for stronger whistleblower protections and advocating for an end to these prosecutions. So right now we have uh, David McBride, who helped expose war crimes in Afghanistan. Uh, in two months' time, he'll go on trial for blowing a whistle. Um, the first person on trial in relation to Australia's war crimes in Afghanistan uh, is a whistleblower, not an alleged war criminal. That's an extremely troubling state of affairs. We've also got Richard Boyle, the tax office whistleblower, who exposed wrongdoing uh, in the debt recovery practices of the tax office, and he also is on trial for telling the truth about government wrongdoing. We'll continue to do that, that work, the policy work, the advocacy work. But what is, is new and exciting uh, about the launch of the project is we'll be providing legal support and assistance to whistleblowers who, unfortunately, to date, have all too often struggled to get access to the support they need. Uh, and so that's where the, you know, the, the, the critical development is. We'll uh, act for whistleblowers, we'll advise them on speaking up safely and lawfully, and then if they suffer as a result uh, of speaking up, we'll, we'll look to bring legal action on their behalf. Speaking with Human Rights Law Centre Senior Lawyer Kieran Pender, all about their new dedicated legal service to support whistleblowers and broader advocacy in that space as well. And I mean, you can imagine people looking to the examples of Richard Boyle and, and David McBride and even the really sort of you know tortured experience of Bernard Caleri um, as well in relation to him handling uh, you know classified information about Australia's alleged spying on uh, oil negotiations in East Timor. They might look to those examples and say, well, why would I risk my life? and career by exposing wrongdoing. You know, these people do take a massive um, massive risk in doing so. If people do observe wrongdoing in their workplace and they may be thinking about going to an investigative journalist or, or blowing the whistle in some way, I mean, is seeking legal support kind of the best, most advisable thing for them to do in the first instance? Uh, yes, um, and, and I guess that's why we're doing what we're doing, uh, is to ensure people can access that specialist legal support. The, the law... It does on paper protect people who speak up, but it's not working in practice. And so what we need to do is to make sure this law is actually working by giving people the legal support they need. And if we see improvements in the the experiences of whistleblowers, Kieran, is this likely to be the first of many dedicated legal services for whistleblowers? Or you know, what, what do you see as the future, I guess, if we do see improvements in, in the way that... Uh, people can come forward and expose wrongdoing? So I think the reason, one of the reasons we're setting up this uh, project is because it's inspired by successful initiatives in other countries where whistleblowers have been able to get the support they need and uh, whistleblowing laws have worked as they're intended because people can get this support. So we have similar initiatives in the US, in the UK, in Ireland, in Serbia, in, in France, in, in across parts of Africa 
that are you know, ultimately contributing to a better democracy by helping people speak up about wrongdoing, whether that's human rights violations, whether it's government wrongdoing, whether it's corporate misdeeds. And, you know, we really hope that this is the beginning of a blossoming ecosystem in Australia where whistleblowers can get access to the support they need, uh, following those the footsteps of those other jurisdictions I mentioned, uh, and ultimately making Australia a better place to be a whistleblower. And how has the service gone so far? You've been operating for, for a few weeks. Have, you know, has it borne fruit already? Uh, well, we've only just started, but uh, certainly there's been um, uh, a lot of interest, uh, a lot of people contacting us already. So, uh, yeah, a lot of work ahead, but an exciting time, and we're really optimistic we'll be able to make a modest contribution to improving transparency and accountability in Australia. And, you know, do you think there's a, a change afoot in Parliament at the moment, Kieran? I mean, we've got that delegation of cross-party MPs, senators going over to the US uh, to argue the case of Julian Assange. Do you feel that there's a, a growing appetite to improve the, the circumstances? I know it's a little bit different, but, you know, of, of journalists and whistleblowers in our democracy? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, we'll we'll see. Um, uh, we've seen from the crossbench increased um, uh, advocacy for whistleblowers. Uh, the government has committed to stronger whistleblower protections and considering whether to establish a, a body to oversee and enforce these laws, a whistleblower protection authority. So yeah, that's all really exciting. It's a, a, you know a time of positive momentum, but that good work is undermined by the fact that these prosecutions continue and the fact that in two months' time, the first person on trial for war crimes in Afghanistan is the whistleblower not an alleged war criminal. That is unconscionable. It undermines the good work being done by the government and it's why we need an end to the prosecution of whistleblowers and urgent reform to ensure these sort of things can't happen again. And some some of the risks involved in whistleblowing can fall upon the journalists as well. You know, they can be held in contempt of court if they don't disclose um, confidential sources. Is your service sort of just for those people who have observed wrongdoing within their workplace or can it be accessed by, you know, journalists, whether they work for media organisations or freelance journalists who think they might be in a compromised situation from handling sensitive material? So journalists definitely face risks in in reporting on material sourced by whistleblowers. Our focus is on supporting whistleblowers, but we'll work hand in hand with journalists already, uh, you know, dealing with many journalists who've been grateful that we've been able to support whistleblowers um, in relation to stories that they're seeking to tell. Um, But I think your your question goes to this wider problem of a Mm. framework in Australia, a legal framework that doesn't robustly protect the truth whether that's through, you know, overly onerous defamation law, whether that's through problems with our FOI system, a lack of uh, shield laws, you know, robust shield laws that protect journalists and protect whistleblowers. So, look, a lot of work to be done, but hopefully this is a positive step in the right direction. Sounds like it. Kieran, thanks so much for spending some time on Triple R with us. Uh, Human Rights Law Centre Senior Lawyer Kieran Pender there telling us about the Whistleblower Project, and you can go to the Human Rights Law Centre website to find out more about that. And uh, the, the goal there is to provide uh, sound legal advice to whistleblowers. Um, all the best with that, Kieran. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. As we approach a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, it feels particularly important to have First Nations journalists represented across our media landscape. But we know the industry has not always been a safe space for those from diverse backgrounds. 
Someone who's spent a long time in the media sphere is Bunjalong and Cullerly man Daniel Browning. He's penned a beautiful article in Overland Journal, also part of an extra, uh, a new book that's come out through Magabella Books, reflecting on his decades-long career with the ABC, his role and responsibility as a storyteller, and some of the difficult experiences, including racism, he's experienced along the way. Daniel's voice has been described as warm honey trickling over a granite rock next to a rainforest stream, which is absolutely a beautiful description, and we're very excited to that voice to the Triple R airwaves now. Daniel, welcome. Oh my God, pressure much. <laughs> <laughs> Let us hear that yeah. voice. <laughs> I'm sorry I repeated that, that uh, compliment. <laughs> well, it's a pretty good one, so I can't blame you. Um, I mean, you write in this essay that you'd been sitting on the stories uh, and I suppose the sentiments behind it for some time and it was Alan Van Nieven who convinced you to kind of get it out into the public. Was there anything in particular apart from the nudge from Alan Van Nieven that, that led you to, to getting them published now? Uh, look, it was, uh, to be honest with you, the contract for this book sat, on my, sat in my inbox at the start of the pandemic all the way through the pandemic uh, and for months thereafter, I wasn't sure that that there would be anybody who would be interested in my collected thoughts. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 people come to you and they kind of approach you and they come up with an idea, and I think it's a really good idea. If one, if there's one great thing about this book, everything that I've written is kind of in one place, and there's 330 pages of it, but a lot of it is stuff that I've. I forget I've done. You know, I had to go back and kind of go, wow, yeah, did that? No, did I do what, what do I do with that? Where's that original um, Microsoft Word document of that particular essay? But it's just really nice to have all these things and all these ideas kind of in one repository. <laughs> it sounds really slack, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, that, there's, there's actually more good reasons for this book to be out. It, it, it comes along at a time when. You know, we're contemplating a whole range of things and questions about, um, you know, what kind of place we we have in this in this country, and in, in that kind of atmosphere, everything's frenetic, everything's everything's kind of toxic at the moment, and everything is is like having a fight um, um, at the pub <laughs> um, yeah. with people who don't really want to don't really know the subject, so. Yeah, it's always complicated, and I think being a black foreign in this country, in this country, is always complicated. And I think I've tried to do with all these all these essays is to kind of communicate. Just you know, I I, I grew up with black folks. All the people I loved that loved me and brought me into the world <clears throat> were black fellows. So <laughs> to hate myself is impossible. To hate them is impossible. And unfortunately, what this country has tended to do, certainly when I was growing up, it produced media that encouraged that that, that view, that there was something um, lacking in black folks, that there were, we weren't um, we weren't equal for many reasons, and um, you know, one of them was like, uh, you know, we're we're not we're not just lazy, we're, we're stupid as well, and I think I make that. I make that point in, in, in a short play that I wrote that, that there's this view that that we we can't we don't we don't we haven't equally contributed to Australian society when we know that history tells us that we have. And the book that I'm working on now, the second book, is all, is all about um, that kind of deficit that has been taught. That is so it's so subterranean. It's so deep. You can't even perceive it. 
You don't even know why you think this stuff. It's, it's bred in you. And I really want to change. I really want to change that. I want to change, I want to change a lot of things, but I just wish, I wish those, those things hadn't been, hadn't been ingrained in me. And as a black fella, mm-hmm. self-loathing black fella, um, so I get it. I kind of get it out with this book. I, I really just lay it all on the table and, and, and really every, every essay is a manifesto. <laughs> You know, do you, do you I haven't it? really sold the book very well, have I? <laughs> well, <laughs> I did. Yeah, but Daniel, I, I mean, what is it that that prompted you to enter the media thirty? I think it's thirty years ago that you you go there. Were you sort of conscious of some of these reflections that you include in your essay in Overland and also in the book as you enter media, or what was it that that sort of no, wanted no, you to I take your, your storytelling into that into that medium? Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't aware. I was. I was naive. I was. I didn't want to believe. You know, all this to, to, to this this to be true. I, didn't, I wasn't such a critic of of the world, <laughs> um, and I wasn't. Perhaps I didn't know my history well enough. Perhaps I hadn't. You know, I think every single person I've ever ever met, ever interviewed, where they've truly, truly um, opened their heart and 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 shared with me, and I've been very lucky in, in that respect. Um, they've taught me something about this, this historical relationship, this contemporary relationship, and how they negotiate, how they navigate being a black farmer. And from all of those experiences, um, I can, can I just say that it's, it's been a, it's been, you know, beautiful. It's also been deeply... Deeply worrying, deeply um, disturbing, uh, and some of those stories that I've heard have been, you know, ones that I wanted others to know. So in, in that, in having that, being close to my subject, which is essentially myself, I'm black colours, um, in that, what I wanted to do was to, to be the person who could communicate that to a wider audience. Like taking this, I'm taking something someone said. And then really create creating something with that person to to to, to develop a, a more kind of, kind of more mature uh, critical understanding of, of who it is we think we are and who it is we actually are. So there's a lot of questioning uh, in this book and a lot of questioning in in, in my journalism. Yeah, um, yeah. There's probably much I can say about. About it, it's very difficult. I, I'm not. Used, I'm not used to talking about myself. I'm not used to talking about what I think. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of at that point now where I, it's, it's okay. I probably earned the right to say something, or to, a thing or two. <laughs> Absolutely, and and you write in the essay which is published in Overland and also is included in your book about we're living in in a moment now where your positionality, so that's like, the, you know, the particular experience you have, life experience connections with, you know, your First Nations communities and, and others is seen as an asset, whereas throughout sort of journalism in the past, that was really not deemed to be the case at all. And you write about this um, kind of veiled sense of objectivity, which, which really has been defined by predominantly kind of, you know, white male newsrooms, not just in Australia, but in many other countries around the world as well. But I'm sort of conscious as well that having that positionality um, sort of, you know, 
front and centre for, for, can be a real burden as well. I and mean, we've seen what's happened with Stan Grant and, and him unceremoniously leaving the ABC as well. So I wonder about your sort of reflections on kind of the journalism media sort of industry and, and how we negotiate that recognition that people do have really important perspectives that are worth listening to, but also that that comes with a great burden when Australian society isn't necessarily willing to accept that. Yeah, look, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky job. It's a tricky job um, for, for any black fella in a, in, a, in a, you know, mainstream newsroom to negotiate the, the, these issues, particularly when you're, you know, prevailed upon to do the job of a, of a black fella. Which is, you know, what do you bring the organisation? What do you bring that newsroom? Well, you bring who you are. You bring you bring your subjectivity to it. Without it, why why would there be identified positions? Why would why would they target? I mean, you've got to remember that, that this is part of a drive. I mean, I joined the ABC in 1994 um, under a cadetship program for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, journalists. I wasn't there. I wasn't. Inter- I didn't. I didn't interview the other candidates. But you know, I, I don't know what kind of, what kind of, um, what kind of process that was, or how difficult it was to find to find a cat to find a, a cadet. But um, I, I was brought in that way. So that's my job. My job is to be is to reflect that community. Is to reflect. Um, my mob, and to to, to 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 be close to the subject because in that in that what we were trying what they were trying to do was to rest this kind of you know what people regard as you know we you know the news media was was famous for kind of particularly playing images of Aboriginal people which weren't aligned to a story. So if you had a story about health. Um, you'd, you'd, you'd see, you know, mobs of people in Alice Springs in, in the river in the river there, um, usually drinking. So they used to use file footage of, of Aboriginal people in all kinds of settings. God knows whether they had had people's permission half the time. And this was the thing that, that happened. This was what you did. You showed this is what Aboriginal people look like. Um, and I clearly, I'm clearly not from Alice Springs. I'm from the far north coast of New South Wales, and that. That doesn't necessarily represent, you know, my my lived experience. I'm not saying that we should every 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 piece of news media should reflect one's individual experience. But when you don't see what you are, when you see something that you aren't, you kind of have to have to change that. And for years, I I struggled with it. I really did. I, I didn't think if I didn't think I'd make my first year. I really really couldn't see how. But I. I was able to years later specialise in, in, in reporting Indigenous culture and did that for 15 years. And in that time, I kind of really... I learned, I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about myself. But I think I did an important job, and that was, you know, when there's nothing else... Um, we're not, we, weren't, we weren't always on the, on, the, on the eve of a referendum or a question which seems to go to the heart of, a, of the broken relationship. There were other times too where, where things were just as just as serious and just as um, I don't know, kind of toxic. Mm. Um, so look, I, I just I just I don't know why journalism called called out to me, but it can let go. It's, it's not it's not everything anymore. It's not um, what I live and breathe. But it, 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 storytelling, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think 
that's something that we need in order to, to, to know that that fella next to you on the tram or that, that woman on the bike next to you when you're, you're pedaling to work, that we're, we, actually, we actually are okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it may seem like overwhelmingly negative, but it's not. It's why we all engaged in this subject, because it's important. And it's important that we speak to each other. It's important that we communicate and that people understand and that people just pause and occasionally just hear that whispering in the ear, which is, which is how I would describe my writing. It's not, I don't use a microphone anymore. I don't want to for the rest of my life. Really? I didn't... I, that's, yeah. Um, Daniel Browning's with us and... Uh, if you're a radio listener, you'll know his voice, uh, ABC journalist and now author and uh, close to the subject is his book out through Megabala Books and uh, also uh, an excerpt from that in the latest Overland, which we've been reading. And, you know, it was interesting in, in the excerpt that we've read in Overland, Daniel, that you, you point out, I'm quite high up, that, you know, you, you haven't won a Walkley and there's, um, and I guess, but I think there's a sense of those that choose community as a priority in storytelling. And, look, we do that here at, at Triple yeah. R, we're community radio, sure. and that there's a sense that we're sort of outside the industry somewhat in journalism perhaps. Um, yeah. But then you... The, but the way that you speak, though, about, you know, the importance of individual stories is fundamental to media and storytelling and journalism too. And I wonder, do you think that there's something sort of changing or in the ether about the importance of hearing more voices in Australian media uh, at all? Do you think, do you sense a shift after the decade you've been involved that, that we're going there now? Of course there's been a shift, absolutely. This is why I describe my, 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 my Aboriginality and my subjectivity as a blackfella as being an asset rather than a deficit. When I joined, it was just, I was just probably another blackfella you know, it wasn't going to last. It was just, just fading. He's going to, he's going to get, through, get through the cadetship and he's going to leave and he's going to go off and do something else. But no, I stuck, I stuck at it. I stuck with it because you know, ultimately I believe in the institution. I believe in what the ABC does. I believe in what public broadcasters do. I believe what independent public broadcasters do. Um, there's absolutely been a shift, but I would say to you that it has been a reckoning. There's been a reckoning with power all over the world. There's been a reckoning with, with, with this idea of objectivity, there's been a reckoning with race. Um, that illusion that compels so many of us. Um, and, you know, like, it's, it's, it's incredibly positive, but I, 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 I caution just to say, I caution to say anything because it reverses can happen so quickly. Mm. We don't know what is around the corner. We don't know. <laughs> anything could happen. And who knows what will happen with the result of the referendum question because I don't see it in terms of, you know, we're, we're not actually arguing the question. We're arguing something much deeper. We're arguing it actually becomes the right to exist. And I face this with, uh, with, with, with every other gay, lesbian, transgender and uh, every other person who, who wanted to marry and who could, um, who, every other non-heterosexual, um, with a post about with a post about it, the same kind of thing, that reason to exist, your reason to exist, You're asking someone else to confirm your right to exist. Not necessarily about the marriage, about being able to marry. I don't think you want to get married. We haven't got much of a husband. Um, 
it's about, it's about something deeper. And I think I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just saying there's, there's a lot to consider here. There's, there's, there's a big question about our, our right to exist as a, as a mob. And yes, yeah, but there's, there's absolutely been a shift, and I acknowledge that. But I think it's been a cultural change that happened without Australia, outside of Australia. Yeah. I think it's a global, a global phenomenon, uh, and really probably dates from the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. A real reckoning with power and how how you can watch a police policeman stand on the neck of a, of a black man and watch him die. That's what, and you you confronted that. The reality that it, this would be reported could be reported in many different ways. Except what you see with your eyes. I think we all confronted what reality was and what truth was and the um, subjective nature of the way such incidents had been reported in the past. So there was a real there was a real challenge in, in that in that time, and yeah, I think that that's what really that was for me the the kind of confrontation with truth. Yeah, there's um we've kind of just scratched the surface of the so many important and necessary issues to to grapple with that are explored in your essay, which um, is the the title of which is close to the subject, which is also the title of your book, Out Through Magabella Books, um, which came out at the beginning of this month. It's really just the introduction. It's really just the introduction, but yeah, it's, um, it's all about being close to the subject, so yeah. Yeah, and the book itself, Out Through Magabella Books, which people can get their hands on now at independent bookstores. It's been so wonderful speaking to you this morning on The Grapevine, Daniel. Congratulations on the book and hope to chat again. Thank you so much for for having me. Thanks. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, Turns out fewer Australians are participating in formal sports, uh, which is coinciding with an increase in the number of us getting into informal sport, that is catching up with a colleague to go for a run, swimming in the ocean, playing basketball or tennis on neighbourhood courts with friends. And this is uh, coming out of research uh, from Professor Ruth Jeans at Monash University, who's been studying informal sport participation and found that that kind of sporting activity uh, has a wider appeal for more diverse groups of people and along with that comes a whole lot of benefits and it's really great to have you with us Ruth on Triple R. Good morning. Good morning Carly. Good morning Dylan. Thanks so much for having me on today. Oh it's great and I mean I guess it makes sense that you can measure formal sporting participation but how do we know that informal sporting participation's on the rise Ruth? That's a really good question, actually, because, yeah, you're right. It is um, a lot easier to measure um, formal sort of club-based participation where we've got an easy sort of line to track statistics. With informal sport participation, um, it's a little bit more tricky to do this, but the uh, Australian uh, Ausplay data is available, which has indicated these trends in sort of more informal participation data. And um, our own study has done observations across different sites and local authorities and has pointed to um, sort of quite a pronounced uh, amount of informal sport participation. Where we were observing, we were sort of seeing informal sport participation of around just over 50% compared to formal sport participation. But the, the Ausplay statistics suggest that the participation rates for informal uh, sport are, are greater than that. So, um, yeah, it seems to be a, a format of participation that's definitely on the rise. And so can you just give us a sense of exactly what the distinction is? How, how do we define informal sport from formal sport? 
Yeah, that's another <laughs> great question because, again, it's quite a slippy thing to, um, to sort of define and understand. In the project we've done, we've looked at informal sport as, and defined it as being um, sport that takes place where participants don't have to have a sort of membership. They're not playing registration. Um, then they're not paying kind of fees to participate and um, they uh, there's no sort of requirement to be there regularly so it's in our sort of understanding of informal sport participation, it's where kind of a group might come together. They might actually play regularly all the time and sort of two or three times a week, but they're not sort of attached to that membership base. Mm. Um, and we've also, in our study, we've not included um, activities that we probably put more towards fitness activities, so things like personal training group sessions or um, yoga. But, again, it, it's quite sort of... Um, slippy to kind of pin down exactly but that that's sort of the way we've done it and we've really looked at uh formats of sport that we would uh traditionally associate with more club-based sport and looked at them in kind of taking place in this informal setting where there's that, that not that sort of governance structure and that that regulation of the sport setting yeah, you know, it, I mean, it, it bears out you, when you read research and when, when I was reading yours, I thought, yeah, this, this bears out in my observations and also in, in my own life, Ruth, where, mm. you know, we're using the, the local basketball courts more than we used to, we're, you know, swimming in the ocean, um, you know, going on the sort of park runs or going running with friends and these sorts of activities. And I was wondering if if any of this is linked to the big changes we just had, particularly in Melbourne in the pandemic period where a lot of the formal sports were actually closed down and people found other ways of meeting those activity needs or whether these are, you know, longer-term trends that you're uh, you're finding? I think they are longer-term trends. But I, we, we didn't track post-pandemic um, participation through the study. So we actually collected data during periods of uh, sort of the lockdowns um, being removed through through um, our study. But I think certainly the lockdowns did um, push people towards more informal forms of participation. And certainly we noticed that when lockdowns were lifted, people were much quicker back to informal participation than they were to more sort of club-based sport, largely because club-based sport was still highly regulated and had to be at that point. So it was easier for people to engage informally. But I certainly think that COVID sort of has encouraged that form of participation, but definitely I think the trend was already there. And, you know, some of the reports that talk about this move towards unstructured activity, we were having this noted in, like, as early as sort of 2013 in um, Future of Australian Sports reports. So it's definitely been a sort of a longer-term trend, I think. And it's great that people are sort of finding a way to... Um, stay active and, and maybe, you know, meet new friends and that sort of thing by participating in informal sport. But is there a bit of a message from this data for maybe more formalised sport clubs in why people might not be so willing to access them in the same kind of numbers they have in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of... the. Both formats are, are equally important, I think, and there's always going to be a space for the more club-based, formalised um, version of sport. And for some people, that's super appealing. But I think it's recognising that it's not appealing for a broad majority of the population. And what informal sport tells us is that there's a lot of people that are interested in sport, but maybe not doing it in that sort of formalised, structured 
regular kind of way. So I guess some of the key messages are coming out of this is, you know, as we sort of know, there is a love for sport within Australia. Um, there's a lot of people wanting to do it. And maybe if we can look at how we offer to local communities, um, we might be able to entice more people to get involved in sport and to be physically active. So I think that's sort of probably some of the key things that's coming out for more club-based sport. And a lot, a lot of sports are adjusting already and clubs are starting to do this and offer more sort of social offerings, informal, flexible, turn-up-when-you-want kind of opportunities. Um, and those do seem to appeal to a, a, you know, a wider sort of segment of the population than the, the more sort of traditional formats of sport as we know it, where you're kind of paying your registration fees, you have to train a few times a week, you have to be there for competitions, you've got to wear uniforms, you know, all these sorts of factors that informal participants are kind of navigating and, and not having to do to be able to just sort of play their sport. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I know your, your research goes longer than than recent extremes in in cost of living but i imagine there is a barrier there for, for some people to participate in formal sport and then therefore it's exciting that there's more informal sporting options for people around the place you also found that that it's a more diverse group of people uh, ethnically um economically that are participating in the in the informal sport what i mean what can that tell um, local governments and, and other policymakers about how to cater for this desire? Yeah, I think that's a, a crucial point um, in that the, the key thing about informal sport is its low cost and its flexibility and particularly um, for communities that don't have you know access to large um, disposable incomes. And as you're saying, with the sort of cost of living at the moment, that's becoming even more prevalent. The fact that informal sport is largely free or low cost, even where sort of groups might have to book facilities and pay facilities, it's quite, you know, a low cost for them to have to bear compared to kind of high registration fees across sort of club-based sports. So I think that is a key um, aspect of this is the, the two things, the low cost and the flexibility. So with informal sport, if I can't go for a few weeks, I just joining the group when I can and there's no sort of consequences and that is really appealing we found to the, the people we talked to as part of the project. We're speaking with Professor Ruth Jeans from the Faculty of Education at Monash University all about some research that she's been part of into the um, uptick in informal sports participation in Australia and this might go uh, sort of to some extent beyond exactly what you've looked at Ruth but mm-hmm. does the, the, the the kind of rise in informal sports suggests that we need to think about providing more infrastructure in terms of, you know, public basketball courts and reserves that can be used by a whole range of people. Because I know, just sort of from my experience, where, um, you know, if you're using a particular sporting ground that might be used by a club, you need to kind of negotiate with them and work out when you can train, if they're happy for you to train there. Um, And there is a bit of that sort of negotiation involved, I suppose, for these more informal kinds of activities. Yeah, that's absolutely crucial. So one of the key barriers we found that informal groups talked about was getting access regularly to facilities and space. So there's a whole load of layers there of kind of different um, barriers they come up against from being able to book a facility formally can often be quite hard for them because they're not kind of regulated, they're not recognised and often they need public liability insurance to be able to book um, facilities, which most of the groups don't have. 
then even when they can book facilities, often, as you've mentioned, um, Dylan, they're block booked by uh, clubs who are sort of, you know, so it's, it's difficult to kind of get access onto the facilities. So I think in terms of infrastructure going forward, just being able to unlock those facilities and be able to have access, being able to use um, and open up things like school facilities as well to be able to have this sort of informal usage maybe take place there. And also I think there's, there's implications from our study in terms of the types of facilities that we um, build and develop and make available. So, you know, informal groups don't need high-quality, elite standard sports facilities to play on. They just, you know, need access to some space um, and, you know, simple things like water fountains and toilets available for changing those outdoor um, sports and games. Um, so I think it's got some really significant implications for how we develop and how we plan for um, sports participation in the future. Yeah, I mean, look, there's so much in that. I know, you know, especially with the formal organised sport of the, the Matildas in the World Cup recently mm. really put a lot of that on the agenda of who we're catering for and who we're not catering for with sport. So um, congrats on your, your research, Ruth, and, and hopefully really good things come from it. Thanks so much for being on Triple R. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.